uh, in Greek and in Roman theatre. Uh, the, the hypocrite was an actor who would come on stage and he would narrate the story. Uh, the hypocrite would have a chorus of sing singers uh, to back him up and the singers would uh, sing questions to the hypocrite and the hypocrite would answer the questions. And one of the things about a hypocrite in uh, Greek and Roman theatre is that the hypocrite always wore a... Can you see that one behind me? Good. Ah, yes, I can see it now too. Uh, can, anyone, can anyone tell me who that is a mask of? Anyone want to have a crack at that? That's Zeus. Okay, that's a mask of Zeus. And over time, the meaning of the word hypocrite, as this is the way that language works, uh, the meaning of the word hypocrite began to, to expand so that it came to refer not only to someone on the stage but to a person, any person, who, who play acts in life. Uh, any person who, who wears a mask uh, in order to pretend to be someone whom they are not. And uh, so that's where we get the word hypocrite from. Uh, it's, it came to mean something which is negative, uh, something which is not a good thing. Uh, in the Bible, the Bible des describes a person who pretends to be godly, but is only wearing a mask, as being a hypocrite. And that's the reason why. Uh, remember, it's like uh, the religious leaders who would come to Jesus as Jesus is teaching a group of people and the religious leaders would come to Jesus and they would be pretending to be godly and they would uh, ask Jesus a question pretending that they really wanted to know the answer for the sake of their godliness but they were only uh, trying to trap Jesus. Uh, they were wearing a mask, a mask of the hypocrite. Or uh, there's those uh, religious people who Jesus talks about where he says do not be like the hypocrites uh, because he says that they, they like to, pr to pray in the marketplace. They like to talk to God in the place where everyone else is, not because they're actually trying to talk to God, but in fact they're actually trying to get a message to the other people, uh, that they're trying to appear to be godly when they're not. They are play actors. Now, people can play at being Christians. Uh, it's possible to believe the things which the Bible teaches. It's possible to do the kinds of activities which Christians do, like we're doing now, uh, to have the, the outward appearance of being a Christian, but in fact, just to be wearing a mask of godliness. Now, Jesus certainly knew how to draw a crowd, didn't he? Uh, when Jesus taught, when Jesus performed miracles, what happened? The crowds swamped him. And uh, Jesus, we know, though, was never, um, never impressed. Uh, he was never flattered by large numbers because Jesus knew that the people who came to see him that in that crowd there was a whole range of different reasons as to why people were there. There would be some people there, of course, because they wanted to grow in their relationship with God. Uh, there'd be other people who'd come along because, well, they'd, you know, they found that the teaching was just fascinating. Uh, the miracles were exciting. 
there would have been some people who'd go to the crowd, be a part of the crowd simply because they just wanted to check out what was going on, see what all the fuss was about. And we know that in the crowds there were generally those who were the enemies of Jesus as well. So in the, the mix of all of that, the question is, who is the true disciple? Well, in Luke chapter 6, in the second half of what we call the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus says the, the real evidence of the, the evidence of the real disciple is not the mask, it's actually the fruit. Now, can you all see that tree? Uh, if I look at a tree like that, uh, out there in a paddock somewhere, I, I actually find it difficult to, to be able to identify what kind of tree that is. Now, I, I know that here in the congregation we've got some people who are pretty expert on this sort of stuff who'd be able to tell me exactly what kind of tree that is, but... For me, a layperson, I look at that and I see a trunk, I see some branches, I see some leaves, that's it. Ask me what kind of tree it is, I, I don't, don't have the foggiest idea. But, but, if you look at the same kind of tree at a different time of the year, even I can tell you what kind of tree it is. Can you tell me what kind of tree that is? It's an, it's an apple tree. It's an apple tree. Uh, and it's because we can... When it bears fruit, we can tell what kind of tree it is. What kind of fruit distinguishes the true disciple of Jesus from the person who is simply play-acting? That's the question. And the answer is, one is like a tree which produces good fruit, and the other is like a tree that produces rotten fruit. Now, we started to see something of this in last week's passage because uh, uh, this is all one sermon of Jesus. We've broken it up into two sermons. You know, what Jesus teaches in one sermon, it takes Scott two sermons to teach. Uh, that says something, I think. But in Luke chapter 6, verses 35 to 36, Jesus tells us that if we, if we are people who actually love our enemies, then we will be sons of the Most High. He's not saying that you become a son of the Most High by loving your enemy, but he's, what he's saying is that if we love our enemies, then we have the same DNA as our Father because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And so Jesus says that we should be merciful just as our Father is merciful. So, what kind of good fruit will a true Son of God display in their lives? How about the fruit of mercy? Well, uh, in verses 37 through to 42, if you care to have that open in front of you, and uh, of course there's an outline for you as well if you're taking notes, in verses 37 through to 42, Jesus now helps us to understand what that will mean. First of all, let's have a look at verses, verse 37. In verse 37, um, Jesus says, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, 
and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now this is not like uh, he said earlier on in the sermon, you know, do to others what you'll have, uh, do to others what you would have them do to you. What this is saying is, what you do to others will be done to you. A bit different, isn't it? And it can be good news, can be bad news, depending on what you do to others. <laughs> uh, but if we are people who have truly experience the mercy and the forgiveness of God, then how will that show in our lives? What will be the fruit of that? Well, for one thing, we will be merciful and forgiving towards others who have sinned. And that can be difficult. That can be incredibly hard to do to be merciful and to be forgiving, especially when the person has, has sinned against you personally. But when a person repents and they seek forgiveness, then we will want to be towards them as God has been and will be towards us. To be merciful to forgive them. Now, there are different words that can be translated as to forgive, and the word which is used here uh, is a word which, which literally, literally means to release or to, to set loose. And it's a good concept of forgiveness when you think about it, isn't it? Uh, it means to, uh, to, to release a person from the burden of their guilt, from the burden of the debt that they owed. That's a very powerful image, to be released, to be set free. Jesus said earlier on in the, in the sermon, in the synagogue in Nazareth, when he quoted from Isaiah, that he had come to set the prisoners free. And that's what he does. Have you experienced that? Uh, have you experienced that, that release, that 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 unburdening when you have done wrong. Not just from God, but have you experienced it from other people? You know, the situation where you become aware that you have actually done wrong to someone and that you're, uh, you're sorry about that, but you don't know whether or not the other person will forgive you. And you go to the other person, you tell them that you're genuinely sorry and you're, you're anxious about what their response to that will be, but their response is to forgive and to say, it's okay. Thank you for sharing with me. Thank you for coming. Thank you for saying what you've said. I love you and it's all, everything's fine between us. That's a great moment, isn't it? It's a moment of that sense of release, that sense of unburdening, that sense of being 
forgiven. And when, when that happens, that's the, that's the good fruit, isn't it? When someone actually releases us, they free us, they forgive us for that which we've done wrong to them. It's like God, who is merciful to the ungrateful. But the person who looks righteous, but yet has a, has a spirit of judging, and a spirit of condemning that Jesus talks about here, well, they're not showing a heart which has deeply grasped the mercy of God. Now, so Jesus says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Now, just to clarify this, there are appropriate, for, there are appropriate forms of judgment. Um, <clears throat> it is right for us to use our common sense and to use our minds and our common sense to, uh, to try to assess where a person might be spiritually, uh, to, uh, to, to think through whether a person's a Christian or not, uh, because it's a loving thing to do. For unless we're actually making that kind of spiritual diagnosis, then we're not going to actually be concerned for sharing the gospel with people who are not Christians. Uh, or to pray for their conversion. That's a loving judgment to make. Uh, it's also appropriate where a brother or sister is sinning uh, to actually confront the person, to rebuke them, to correct them, uh, even uh, to discipline them. But when we do so, when we speak the truth to people, we speak the truth to them not with a condemning spirit, not with a judgmental spirit, but we speak the truth to them in, in love, don't we? In love for their well-being so that they might have the opportunity to know what it is that they've been doing wrong and have the opportunity to repent of that or for the well-being of others whom are affected. And when we do so, we do so with a humility which recognises our own sinfulness, our own propensity to fall in the same way and which recognises that God has actually been merciful to us. Now, that is very different <clears throat> to the religious person, the, um, the church-going non-Christian, perhaps, uh, who, who looks down on the brokenness of others, uh, the person who, who loves to hear about the brokenness of others, who loves to, to spread the word about the, the sinfulness and the failings of other people. Uh, the book of Proverbs says that gossip is like a choice morsel that goes down to the innermost part of a man. Uh, we love it. We love gossip. We love slander. We love... We love to share with people who don't really even need to know because they can't be involved in actually sorting out a problem. That's the spirit of the Pharisee. That's the spirit of the Pharisee who in the temple prayed, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this tax collector. In verses 39 through to 40, um, this is often a temptation for those who hold positions of spiritual leadership. 
um, people <clears throat> such as myself and others in our church. One of the um, principles of Christian leadership <clears throat> is that good leaders are people who themselves are willing to be led. Uh, you don't give a person a position of spiritual leadership if they're a person who, who does not actually submit to the spiritual leadership of others. Because put per such a person in a role of leadership and they'll become a tyrant. That's an important principle. Um, the Pharisees, with a, uh, a few exceptions, were not willing to be led by God's word in Jesus. They certainly turned up at the meetings, but they were not disciples. They did not show the good fruit of teachability and submission, submitting their lives to the word of God. We see this in verse 39 to 40. In verse 39, where Jesus told them this parable, and it's we, we probably wouldn't call it a parable, we'd call it more of a question, but the word parable has a variety of different meanings in the New Testament. But he told, told them this parable, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. And I think this is what it's saying. Because in their arrogance, they were blind. Uh, they pretended to be leaders of God's people, but they weren't actually prepared to be learners. And you know what happens when the blind lead the blind, don't you? They both fall down the pit. And that's true of anyone who wants to be a, a leader amongst uh, God's people. It's true, true for anyone who wants to be a Bible study leader or a Sunday school teacher or a scripture teacher or a preacher. They must have the humility to work hard at understanding God's word and they must have the desire to follow him. And actually that's true of all of us, isn't it? No matter who we are. Especially important though to pray for those of us who are in teaching roles uh, that we would uh, be stripped of pride and that we would be seeking only to exalt uh, our Lord God. Because as that happens, it leads to the good fruit of mercy in our lives. Both mercy that uh, extends from us and mercy which is granted to us. Uh, and we see in verse 38... And Jesus paints a picture which is borrowed from the marketplace. Now, um, some of the older people, some of the senior people, um, <clears throat> tell me that, uh, you know, when they were growing up, that when you wanted food, you didn't necessarily go down to Coles and just pull stuff off the, sh off the supermarket shelf, but you'd go to the local store, and if you wanted flour... Uh, the guy would get the big bulk thing of flour and he'd uh, pour, pour it out into a bag for you and seal it up and... Is that how it worked? Anyone want to admit to having experienced that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. The good old days, you know, where you got personal service. You, know, you didn't have to go to an automated checkout. You know, they actually poured the, the flour out for you and uh, had a conversation, a bit of a chin wag and... Uh, 
and so on. Well, Jesus paints a picture here of someone who goes to the, uh, the marketplace and, uh, and so, so we don't know what commodity he was talking about here, he doesn't mention it, but say you go to the marketplace uh, to buy a container of flour and the, the merchant charges you not by weight but by container and uh, he measures uh, the, the flour in a container and the picture here seems to be that the person's got some kind of a, uh, a sack or something that they keep in their lap and then once the, the, uh, the flour or whatever is measured out, it's poured into their lap and they take it back home. So imagine you go to the market to, to buy a container of flour. He charges you by a container, not by weight, and he simply pours the, the flour into the container and it's... You know, it's sort of almost full. It's like, you know, 80% full. Uh, and, um, but it's not really full. How do you feel about that? Feel a bit disappointed? A bit ripped off? Took Cassie out to a restaurant the other night. I ordered a glass of wine. I poured the glass of wine. And, you know, about 65, 70... You know, it's like you, you feel a bit ripped off, don't you? <laughs> you know? Imagine a different scenario. It, the merchant takes the sack of flour and he pours it into the container up to the top, but then he picks up the container, he kind of shakes it around so that the flour settles, and then he, he presses down on the flour as hard as he can with his arms and hands, and once he's pressed it down, he pours a bit more flour onto it, and he shakes it around and presses it down, and then when he does that, he pours some more flour, and it's overflowing, and then he puts it in your lap. The mercy of God. The mercy of God is like that. And when we reflect on his mercy, then we need to actually be like that to others. Jesus says... With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. But the play actor is not overly interested in being merciful towards others because the play actor has not actually experienced the mercy of God in his or her life. They don't think that they need mercy because they convince themselves that they're actually good enough problem with that, though, is that in order to convince yourself that you are good enough, if you are a logical, rational person, then you can't compare yourself with God because you know you're going to fall short. So what do you do? Well, you compare yourself to other people. At least then you've got a chance. You've got a chance. And so you focus on the failings of other people. You focus on, on criticising them, on nitpicking, of running them down so that you can build yourself up in your own eyes and in the eyes of others around, but not in the eyes of God. In verse 41, Jesus says that that's like, it's like you go up to a person and you say, excuse me, you've got a, 
you got a, you, you've got a speck of sawdust in your eye. you mind if I just pluck it out for you? But you keep on not being able to pluck it out because you can't see it because you're actually blind yourself. And the reason that you're blind is whilst that other person's got a speck of sawdust in their eye, you've got a dirty, great, big plank of timber stuck in your eye. And Jesus says, how about you deal with the plank of timber in your own eye first? How about you confess your own sinfulness to Almighty God and receive his mercy, his abundant overflowing mercy, and then you'll actually be in a position to pluck the sawdust out of someone else's eye. But you'll be doing it for a different reason. You'll be doing it in order to help the person with their sin because of the mercy you've received. So the, the good fruit is mercy. The bad fruit is self-righteous hypocrisy. Fruit depends, the type of fruit depends on the tree from which it grows. Uh, in verse 43, Jesus says that no, no good tree bears bad fruit and no bad tree bears good fruit. The tree, of course, is the human heart. Uh, hearing about those terrible events yesterday um, was shocking, wasn't it? I mean, how, how did you feel? You know, you hear these stories of people going into a into a theatre with, um, uh, with automatic rifles and just taking aim and just shooting people dead randomly. Throwing grenades into a crowd just to blow people up. And, and you think about that in Beirut a couple of days earlier. And, and it, makes you, you wonder, it makes you wonder, well, what's, what's going on in the, the hearts of these people? What... what, da, what what evil, what, what blackness, what darkness, what is in their hearts that they would commit such atrocities? Dreadful. Here, Jesus is not just talking about appalling acts such as that. Jesus is actually talking about something as ordinary as the way that we speak, the things which we say. Take a look at verse 45. Verse 45. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart for out of the overflow of his heart his mouth speaks. It's about our speech, isn't it? It's about using our words to judge and to condemn others. It's about teaching when we're actually not teachable ourselves. It's about criticising others in order to establish our own righteousness. And where does it come from? It comes from a heart which is not shaped by the mercy of God. Uh, last week I mentioned that, um, <clears throat> that in the New Testament, disciple 
or teacher, as it's been translated in verse 40. Uh, disciple doesn't just mean someone who learns information from their teacher. A disciple would actually follow their teacher. A disciple would actually call their teacher master and follow him. You can't be a disciple of someone by doing a course on, online on the internet, just getting the information. It involves a relationship. It involves modelling yourself on the person who is teaching. That's what a disciple is. There's a lot of teachers I would not follow. We follow Jesus. And yet, uh, in verse 46, there is no sense in calling Jesus Lord uh, and then not doing as he says. Jesus, in another place, says, uh, uh, people come to him on the day of judgment saying, Lord, Lord, did we not do this, that and the other? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Because calling Jesus Lord involves more than just absorbing information from Jesus, it involves actually doing what he says. There is no sense in believing the things which Christians believe, doing the activities which Christians do, like we're doing now, but not actually doing what Jesus says. In verses 46 to 49, that, that is like building a house, building your house near a river and not sinking foundations deeply into the, into the ground, into hard, solid rock. Because if you don't do that, you know what's going to happen. When the rain, hap rain comes, when the river rises, when the floodwaters, you know what? Your house will be the house that people will be watching on the 7 o'clock news. The remains of the house will be floating down the river. But it doesn't need to be like that. If we listen to the words of Jesus and if we obey them, then on the day of judgment, we will find that we have very deep and very sound and very secure foundations and we will survive the storm of judgment. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, the Apostle Paul says, Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Good verse, isn't it? Let me say it again. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, so that it might benefit those who listen. And the word that he uses for unwholesome here is actually the word which literally means rotten fruit. Rotten fruit. Paul is saying, do not let any rotten fruit talk come out of your mouth or your pen or your keyboard. Rather, in view of God's mercy, in view of 
God's extraordinary mercy, his poured out, shaken about, pressed down, overflowing mercy, let us speak words of release to those who seek our forgiveness. Let us teach what we actually obey. And instead of plucking specks of sawdust, let us use our words to encourage and to help those who are caught up in sin so that we might actually, because of the mercy we've received, be of benefit to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your immeasurable, abundant, overflowing mercy in Christ. We thank you that you are merciful towards those who are undeserving, like us. We pray that we would be as you are towards us, towards others. May we bear that good fruit of mercy in our lives. And Father, as we know that our words actually flow from our hearts, we pray that we would have hearts that um, have so been changed by that mercy that our words would be words which would help, which would build up, which would encourage, which would forgive. As in Christ you've done for us and in whose name we pray. Amen.